All right, Tim Blankenship here again with the Divorce 661 Daily Perspective, Episode 3, going over what my clients are facing, work I've done, how I've helped clients, because I think in going over this, you'll find that you have similar possible issues in your divorce case that will need to be resolved, and we're going to talk about that. So one of the first things, uh, lots of consultations today, just high level, what we're going to talk about is military divorce cases, um, judgment approvals that we've had this uh, today. Uh, we're talking about child support income withholding orders, how to equalize property like 401ks. Uh, we're going to talk about mandatory preliminary disclosures and the final disclosures. We're going to talk about what a bifurcation is. Uh, we're going to talk about uncooperative spouses. And we're going to talk about uh, child custody and where you should file for divorce. So let's get into it. So going back to, and I'm going to just rattle these off. Number one. Do we handle military divorce cases? I get that question all the time, and the answer is yes. A military divorce is no different in process than any other divorce case. Just because you're in the military, I know you're special. I was in the Marine Corps as well. You can see it here. Um, the process is the same. I know on base they do have facilities and services uh, for you to utilize uh, and to get kind of like self-help, if you will. But my understanding, and please let me know in the comments if you're in the military and going through divorce, my, what I'm hearing from my clients that end up hiring me is that it's hard to get appointments, uh, that they're very busy, very similar to the courts. Uh, trying to get help from the courts is also, is also very challenging. So yeah, the process is the same. I know there might be questions about, you know, and I'm I'm coming from, the perspective of it being a amicable divorce. The process is the same. I know there's other things related to um, retirement being different with the military, and there's some there's some different things there. But as far as the process from an amicable front, being in the military does not change the process. Number two, uh, as far as what we did today, lots. Uh, it's always busy. I always say we're trying to cram uh, twelve hours of work into eight hours, and I laugh at that because I always am working well longer than eight hours, uh, usually get in the office by five and out by five or 6 p.m. So 11-ish, 12 hours, and that's just what it takes to get uh, everything done. And I'm not complaining, I'm just uh, fortunate uh, to be this busy. Uh, we had three LA County divorce cases approved. I talk about this all the time as far as uh, approvals being quick, usually 24 hours uh, in most cases for judgments once we submit them for review, which is amazing. Uh, clients are extremely happy that we can get their paperwork done so fast and they can, you know, they're not officially divorced. The six months still has to pass, but they have that divorce decree in hand. It's dated by the judge. All their agreements are in place and uh, they're just waiting for that final divorce date to pass. Keep in mind, nothing else happens if you're a client watching this. When we get your divorce case done, say today, these three cases were done September 28th. The final divorce date, I want to say they were in April, like 14th or something like that. Nothing's going to be received by the court. The court's not going to send anything else out after the 14th uh, of February because they've already approved your divorce paperwork. So when that date passes, all that magically happens is you are technically no longer married. Number three, child support income withholding orders. So um, when we put together a child support order um, for our clients, it's, it's, which is part of the overall divorce process, you're going to have custody and child support if you want it. A, a withholding order, if you look at the court paperwork and rules, it says that a withholding order is mandatory and that it has to be filed with your judgment. 
And then they will sign that and then it will be sent to the employer of the paying spouse. So spouse or so child support can be paid directly to the state disbursement unit in California so they can monitor the child support payments and then disperse that to the receiving spouse uh, on like a debit uh, card. We haven't filed. I think I filed two with uh, income withholding orders for support in 11 years. And it was only because the parties wanted it. Uh, most people don't want an income withholding order. They just don't want their employer to know. Maybe you have a small employer. You don't want them to know you went through a divorce. You don't want to have to have an income withholding, go to your employer. Maybe it's a pain for, maybe it's a small employer, uh, like I was saying, and they and you don't want uh, them to have to try and figure out how are they going to now pay this separate entity on your behalf. And then them just knowing your business. So uh, our amicable clients, 11 years, I've done two withholding orders and it's because they just didn't want to have to write a check uh, or do a direct deposit or however they were going to pay that child support. They just wanted to come out of their check for convenience. But most people don't want that. And it's not required, even if it is. There, once in a while, we'll get a weird, quirky court or a clerk or judge saying, hey, we're not going to approve the judgment. This happened in Pomona once. They said, we're not going to approve the judgment unless you submit the withholding order because we're requiring it for whatever reason this time. That's fine. We'll submit it. They can sign it and they send it back to us. We just don't file it with the employer. So it's not a problem. Number four, equalizing assets, debts, and 401ks. So we'll get calls where people have lots of assets, maybe several 401ks. The client I just got off the phone with today, they had, uh, the petitioner had three 401ks. The respondent had two. And they're like, oh, we're going to need, you know, five quadros. Quadros are, is a qualified domestic relation order. It's the process that has to go through after the divorce to actually move the money from one account to the other. And it gets expensive. Uh, some attorneys charge upwards of $2,500 per quadro. And we charge a thousand bucks. We do do them. But we try and eliminate the need for as many as possible. And what we ask people to do is look how, uh, if it's possible that they can equalize the those assets with other assets or other debts. So I'll give you a for instance. So let's say that there's a three 401ks all held by one party, and it doesn't matter, but you, you get out a piece of paper and you have three 401ks. Let's say one has $200,000 in it, and then the other two are smaller. Let's say they have $25,000 in each. If you're going to do three quadros, it would be 100,000 from one and 20 and 12,500 from each of the smaller ones and you do three quadros. What I'd recommend in that type of scenario is one, you do not quadro the two smaller plans. So you have half of those two $25,000 plans, which is $25,000. What I'd recommend you do is just add an add an additional 25,000 to the larger 401k. So you'll do half of that 401k, that $200,000 401k in this in this uh, scenario, and then add another $50,000 to that to offset or equalize the two smaller ones. Then what you will do, let's say they are owned by the petitioner. Petitioner will keep 100% of both those smaller 401ks. And then the settlement agreement will say that um, the community uh, respondent will receive their community property interest in the $200,000 401k plus $50,000 as an equalization payment. And now you have one quadro versus three. And you can do that in a, a couple of different ways, not just with 401ks, maybe uh, a 401k for a house. You have uh, $500,000 in equity in the home and your spouse has a $500,000 pension or 401k. You keep the house, I'll keep the 401k, go your separate ways. 
it's not always that easy because you know 401ks aren't liquid maybe part one party doesn't want to keep the house so you got to look at all those uh um issues as well as as well as any possible tax related issues number five preliminary disclosures so there's a couple things i want to talk about this when you go through the divorce process both parties in amicable divorce, in any divorce, I don't know why I said that, need to do their preliminary disclosures. This is an income and expense declaration, schedule of assets and debts. These documents do not get filed with the court. These are purely for disclosure. I think the 142 even says do not file with the court. So those are purely for disclosure and they are mandatory. It's a mandatory step in the process. Um, I don't collect those. If you're my client, you guys do those on your own. You share them with each other. They don't go to court. They're just to help you guys share with each other what you guys have so you can reach a fair agreement. That's that's the purpose of the disclosure process. Um, the final declaration of disclosure, however, can be waived. So um, there are two sets of disclosures, preliminary and final. What is final used for? If you Let's say you are going through maybe a, a divorce with a, attorneys and it's taking a long time and they can't do it in five weeks like I can. Uh, and they, they're going through the court system. In those cases, you would have um, preliminary disclosures done, initial petition filed, response filed. Each party does their uh, disclosures within 60 days. Now, let's say you're not in agreement. The, the attorneys can't get you guys into a settlement. They set a case for trial, and that's going to be six, eight months out. Before you go to trial, on top of potential discovery and all that, there's going to be a, a final declaration of disclosure. And it's basically updating, you know, say, hey, we did our preliminaries, got all that information out there for purposes of settlement. But now six months later, we're going to trial, we need to update that. Has there been changes? The court's going to want, usually within a couple of weeks, they're going to want fresh disclosures. And that's what the final disclosure is. If you're going through amicable divorce with me, there's a form we've attached as part of the judgment package that um, basically is a uh, Waiver of final declaration of disclosure. So we definitely recommend you do that. I've had clients uh, earlier in the week, I didn't mention this earlier, that they were doing their final declaration of disclosure. They were, they were literally going through that process of doing their disclosures all, all over again. Totally unnecessary. Uh, I know the instructions of the court can be confusing, and that's why if you use my service, we kind of just cut through all that. I take care of it all for you. You don't have to worry about that. Number six, bifurcation. Um, we handle a lot of bifurcations. First, let me define that. A bifurcation just simply means separating one thing from another. So what are we separating? We're bifurcating. It could be a couple of things, but usually it's bifurcating the dissolution of your marriage, the divorce part of it, from everything else, asset, debt, division, uh, custody, and all those other terms that would go into a normal divorce. A normal divorce, all those are addressed in the settlement agreement. Everything is, is addressed, custody, child support, spouse support. You know, all of that is addressed. If you don't want to do that, you can bifurcate and say, hey, we don't want to address all that for one reason or another. Usually what that when that bifurcation is used is if you're going through a highly litigated divorce and maybe three years into the process, you're still going through litigation and court trials and all that. And you're like, you know what? I just want to be divorced and take that pressure off the table of that. You know, just, just get the marriage dissolved. And you can, by agreement, uh, bifurcate and, and the judge will approve the divorce and then all other issues are reserved for future determination. You can do that by agreement. You can also petition the court to bifurcate, but generally speaking, and I haven't been, you know, I worked for the courts a long time ago. What I recall, and it may have changed, they weren't too keen on approving bifurcations 
when both parties did not agree to it because it does take the pressure off resolving everything else. And they don't want that to linger. They just want to get everything finalized so they can close out uh, your case. The bifurcations that I have been doing have not been for that purpose. They haven't been to, hey, we have a long case. We want to do the divorce. What I have been doing bifurcations on is where we have clients that file for legal separation and they get a judgment for legal separation, meaning they didn't file divorce. They filed legal separation because they didn't want to dissolve the marriage. They wanted to maybe leave that on the table, work it out, whatever. If in those cases, and I think we've done six or seven this year where they did the legal separation, we finalized their case. Four, five, six, seven months later, they called me back and said, Tim, now we want to do the divorce. Now we have to file a bifurcated judgment on the uh, dissolution of the marriage. All that means is we're not relitigating the terms, the custody and all that. That's all part of the settlement agreement. And that brings me up with another topic. But um, we're just saying, hey, we're now separating the divorce from the legal separation. And so you still have to do that bifurcation. And it's uh, a stipulation to bifurcate, essentially. Um, okay, next topic, number seven, uncooperative spouses uh, is worse than if they will fight you. And I say this because I had two calls today where the parties had filed on their own, their spouse and their spouse is doing nothing. They won't talk to them. They won't engage. They won't discuss settlement. I mean, they're amicable, I suppose, but they're just not going to participate. And that is almost worse from a, from a procedural process with the court than if they were to fight. And here, let me set this up. These, these two clients I spoke to today, they are in a stalemate, meaning they filed, they served, and they can't bring their spouse to the table to reach an agreement, um, to even discuss the terms. So what can you do? You can't, you can try and do a default judgment. They're very difficult to get through the court. I can guarantee how they file their petition is wrong because you have to do it totally different to file a default uh, judgment, divorce type case, no agreement, you almost have to, you do have to file your petition completely different than you normally would. I'm not going to go over that in this particular um, daily perspective, but uh, you're going to have to bring them to the table. If they were to fight, at least they're engaged and they're involved and uh, you'll, you could uh, get a hearing with the court. In both these cases, they had not responded the other party did not respond and several months have gone by. And they said, Tim, why don't I file the 165? And I say, why? It's not going to do anything. It's just going to make it more difficult because now they can't file a response and you can't finish the judgment. So why do that? Um, and anyways, even if you did that, the 165 can be set aside by the court and then they can file the response. It's just better if parties uh, are involved. If you were, you know, if you, they are engaged or a response is filed and we did, we had uh, clients that were amicable, and um, then they fell out of agreement. Uh, but we, so what we did is we, a response was filed in that case. They wanted to have that um, response filed for some reason. Most of our cases, we don't do that because it's not necessary if you guys are completely amicable. But because a response was filed, that gave us the ability to file a trial setting request to get them into court, to get them in the system, to move, then the court will move them through the process and they will have to be engaged in that process. Number eight, Child custody and filing where you live and court's jurisdiction. So today I was, uh, uh, we had a client's hire us. They sent me their paperwork. They had filed in 2020. I was looking at their paperwork and they had even tried to submit their judgment and they had the judgment reject uh, sheet from the court. I'm trying to remember what court this was, maybe Santa Clara or one of my favorite courts not to deal with. 
but they had um, on the UCCJA, this is the FL 105. You have to put where the children have lived the last five years. And I noticed they wrote New York on there and it was three years old. So I thought, well, maybe this was, maybe they were in California at the time. And then I couldn't understand why they file a California divorce case if she's living in New York and that's where the child resides. Um, and I also saw that they had the judgment rejected. And one of the clerk's notes was, it appears according to your FL 105 that in the last six months or even five years, I think the child was three, that uh, the child hasn't lived in California. And we, we're not certain that we have jurisdiction over the child to be able to make child custody orders, meaning orders in that they are confirming what the parties agree to. So we would have put it together in a normal case, their agreement regarding child custody. It becomes an order when the judge signs it. But what the court's saying is, I don't think we can sign the child custody agreement because... We don't have jurisdiction to do so. So I asked the client, hey, said, did the child ever live in California or around the time you guys filed? No, the child has never lived in California, always in New York. That's going to be a huge problem. I, I'm guessing the reason they filed this in California was because the petitioner lived in California. I would suggest you always file in the state where the child has lived for the last six months. By the way, that's going to be required anyways, because if you move, like if this person lived in California, then moved to New York, um, and she was a respondent, moved to New York and was there six months. California no, has, no longer has even jurisdiction to be able to accept the case in California because you have to reside in the county for three and state for six. So she would have had to file in New York. I think I'm going to have to recommend to them that one, we, she either dismissed this case and they file in New York so they can get custody orders or, and this only happened one other time in 11 years where the same issue occurred. It was an LA County case. We filed the judgment without the custody orders um, and the court rejected it because they didn't, you know, they didn't have uh, jurisdiction and I had, Oh, it's happened two other times because the first time it got approved in one downtown court. And then in Chatsworth court, they rejected it saying there's no child custody orders. And I said, Hey, you guys don't have jurisdiction. They rejected again. And then I attached a copy of the approval we got on another case from downtown. And then miraculously they approved it. Uh, I always file in downtown for that reason. I think they have the, the best and the brightest and most knowledgeable um, clerks in all of LA County. So wherever you live in LA County, that's where I'm going to file your case. And that is the end of Divorce 661's Daily Perspective, Episode 3. We'll talk to you tomorrow.